You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have back one of our favorite guests with Mr. Alex Gladstein. The last time Alex was on the show, we discussed his groundbreaking article on the IMF and the World Bank. Well, Alex is back with even more because he's turned all of his research into a full-blown book on the topic. We cover a whole host of new and additional ideas uh, from our previous conversation, which is vital information for understanding the impact of the legacy financial system and the hope, the abundant hope that Bitcoin brings to so many regions around the world. So with that, here's my chat with Mr. Alex Gladstein. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Alex. And Alex, this has been a whirlwind. You got a book that just came out like a couple days ago. How's it been? Uh, it's really exciting. Uh, a lot of feedback. It's really nice to hold it in my hands. The hardcover edition, which is what we're going for, at least for the first few months, is just such a nice little package. I think they did a great job with the design. It feels really good. I've been kind of doing this thing the last few years where I'm first drafting a lot of content as free articles on the internet, and then kind of taking feedback, improving them, expanding them, and then turning them into book projects, which has been really gratifying because it allows first of all, anyone to access the content for free, but also do something a little more polished and structured for folks who want it in a book format. And at the end of the day, I think we'll have a much larger reach with the book. It's going to be, this one at least, is going to be available in physical bookstores, Barnes & Noble, things like that. So I think that's going to be really cool. I also like the fact that it's more of an international economics book. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it is a kind of a Bitcoin book in the end, right? (laughs) But the first, whatever, 60, 70, 80% of the book doesn't really talk about Bitcoin. It presents a problem that we've we've discussed before of how the international monetary system is repressive for most people. And I think that that will help draw more people into thinking about Bitcoin. I really do, uh, in the same way that it drew me into thinking more about Bitcoin as a global force. I think we all have our own reasoning for getting into Bitcoin at the beginning, whether it be as a speculative asset, as a as an investment, or in my case, as, a, as kind of a cyberpunk human rights tool, which could provide privacy and censorship resistance. I think we all have our, our entry point. Very, very few people get into Bitcoin because they think it's going to be like the future global reserve currency. <laughs> so I think that hopefully this book can make an impact on people who are thinking about international economics and just show them a different point of view. Yes. Well, it's funny. So my wife, she has a master's in nonprofit management. And I remember distinctly when she was going through her degree, how much this global NGO, IMF, World Bank type stuff is crammed down the throats of all of these you know, nonprofit management students. And I read the article that was kind of the precursor to this book. And I shared the Mm -hmm. article with my wife. She kind of, she flipped through it. And like, I read that thing from the start to the finish and was just so blown away at uh, how, how well you properly define the way they operate and the impacts of what they're doing. And so when I got the, the hardcover ordered, I said to my wife, I said, there's a book coming. And as soon as it gets here, you are reading this thing cover to cover. <laughs> and I really want her to see kind of like basically the other side of the story because everybody's living in the West. Like we hear one side of the story. We really do. Like it's just crammed down our throats. And I think you do just an incredible job, like laying out the other side of the story. So let me lead off with this question for you, Alex, because sure. in your intro, you have uh, this is this is what you wrote. This this particular paragraph I think is really important in your intro. You say, as someone who has spent my career fighting for the classic Western values of freedom and human rights, this book has taught me two things. Number one, these values are more important than ever before and essential for the future success of humanity. Number two, one cost of securing these freedoms in the West has been the deprivation of these freedoms for people elsewhere. Talk to us about the second part of that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a kind of a grim realization. And I think it's something that people intuitively know in a small sense, like it kind of creeps up on you. And I think most people have this sinking feeling that they, they know that there's this unequal quality to the world. What I didn't quite realize was how directly tied together the kind of haves and the have-nots were. Like, I didn't quite realize how dependent success in one area was, honestly, the exploitation of people in another area. I, I really thought they were distinct. And I thought that, you know, the West really was successful just because more or less of its productivity, freedoms, entrepreneurialism, all these different examples. And I thought that, you know, in many ways, the global South governments and societies were less productive because of the lack of freedoms, lack of property rights, things like that. And that's a really naive view in retrospect. I think that's what I thought as a younger person. And that's just obviously very, I think, ignorant. And now looking back, we have to ask, why are these other societies so corrupt and authoritarian? Why do they lack so many, so many institutions? And it is very linked to the West's role there, going back to imperialism, colonialism, and, and then going in the modern era through how the international monetary system has been used to repress these countries on an ongoing basis, again, replacing the weapon of the warship or the cannon or the bayonet with the weapon of debt. And I think that this is not a permanent construct. I don't think this kind of competitive rivalrous dynamic is necessarily going to be permanent. Of course, you're always going to have rivalry. But what I mean by that is I don't necessarily think you're always going to have certain societies that prosper at the cost of impoverishing others. I think that this has quite a bit to do with the quality of the monetary system in the modern age. Because before the fiat, let's say before Bretton Woods, a lot of the exploitation was done through just straightforward violence, right? That's how it was, that's how imperialism was accomplished, right? So in the modern age, when you can't really be so brazen, typically, right? Uh, we're quote unquote more civilized. The exploitation, I, I argue in my book, is, is done through, through debt, through creditors, borrowers, and this relationship. And that's how the Western nations and now even today, China, you know, continue to kind of benefit themselves at the expense of others. I think that if we have a new paradigm where it's where the global reserve currency is is um, neutral and is not sort of preferential to any one nation or group of nations and is, is truly kind of apolitical, then I think a different dynamic can emerge. And, and Jeff Booth calls this uh, forced cooperation. And I think this is really interesting. I don't know. Obviously, it's a little bit of like a hope. We don't know. Everything is speculation. Nobody knows what the world's going to look like in 10, 20 years. But I do think as, as we shift more towards a global language for money that's equal for everyone, that some of these uh, really gross excesses get corrected, let's say. I think it just makes sense that if you have everyone on one standard, there's going to be a little bit of a, a regression to the mean away from some of these really hideous dynamics. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Like basically what we need for the world is post-colonial, post-fiat, post-colonial, post-fiat economy. Like we had a post-colonial economy, but it was fiat money, which enables the, the controllers of that fiat money to still repress. What we really need is a post-colonial, post-fiat money. That's really the only way I think the developing world can really, really thrive. And that can be done in cooperation with the West. It doesn't have to be this dynamic like it's been since, since Bretton Woods, where the West has achieved energy and food sovereignty at the expense of energy and food sovereignty of the global South. I think we can, it seems a little kumbaya, but I really do think we can kind of have a little bit more equal footing here. I really do. Do you think uh, a lot of the key leaders, and I know this is really hard to, to generalize, but do you think a lot of the key leaders in the global South understand your thesis wholeheartedly? Or do you think that because they're living through the pain that that's brought about because of it, or do you think that they view it more as just something that is different than this source that you're basically saying is the fiat system that's the root cause? Do you think that they see it as something else that's that's providing the the troubles that they face? I mean, look, I think anyone who's lived in a country that's been structurally adjusted. <laughs> you know, 10, 15, 20 times 
as you might have in a place like Argentina or Ghana, Pakistan. I think that inhabitants of these countries intuitively know that the IMF is a malicious force. They feel they felt their parents and their grandparents have felt what it's like after an adjustment that mm-hmm. they know that austerity is painful. Doesn't matter what profession or age or, you know, field they're in. That's like something that, that is known, I think, and very obvious. And I think leaders and politicians know this too. The problem is there's a lot of opportunism and even leaders like Lula, for example, in Brazil, who've been very critical of the, the sort of debt-based international monetary system. I mean, you know, they may say one thing, but on the other, on the next day, they may go and they may take the loan, right? Political leaders are in a difficult position because they are tasked with helping people not in 10 years, but now, right? Mm-hmm. So the the kind of temporary short-term nature of politics, whether it be dictatorship or democracy, it just sort of lends itself towards... There's no better opportunities you know, maybe, for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe like they know that that it's bad to like further in debt the country, but what other options do they have is mm-hmm. I guess what the, how they reason it to themselves. I think that these leaders know that this current system is broken, that they've been screwed and that they'd like a different system. I very, very few of them, you know, except for obviously maybe maybe the folks in El Salvador, Central African Republic, a few other places. I mean, I think very few of them are grasping the Bitcoin thing. I do think you're going to see more of that. Right now, what we're seeing, though, quite obviously is gold, right? You're seeing central banks buy gold at all-time levels. This is happening not just in the global south, but all over the world. I just saw a chart yesterday from the FT. It's a historic gold buying pace at the moment. And there's an, it's just interesting. When you look at charts of gold purchases by central banks, you can kind of like see the tre- you know what was called like the treasury standard right like post 71 like people piled into treasuries as savings kind of after the petrodollar was set up that really was really strong until until the global financial crisis right and then it's mm-hmm. it's it peaked and now it's declined and now it's really starting to pick up where a lot of these big big governments are moving away delicately from treasuries and into gold so i think that the gold thing is well understood and I think that gold does obviously provide some sovereignty and and sort of kind of a, a check for, for some of these governments, but ultimately it's pretty limited in a 21st century economy. And for people, it's not that helpful. Like it's just the fact that it, it can't teleport and it's kind of clunky and difficult to, to divide up and to share. And you can't really use it as money, so to speak. I mean, you can, it's really just a savings asset, right? Like it can't really be, it's very impractical to use as money. I think it's interesting to watch gold really become really popular right now, especially in the global south. And I think that as you start seeing this fiat system start to start to unwind a little bit, that's going to accelerate. And then hopefully we see a little more Bitcoin adoption as well. I mean, I really do think that it's something that will help the individual just as much as it'll help local communities and, and sovereigns. Like, I think that's the thing. Gold, like, it's hard to imagine like 10 million people benefiting from self custodying gold. Like, <laughs> like, like certainly that's the case in, in some countries, but it's just sort of hard to imagine that having like a really big impact today. But I can imagine Bitcoin doing that for obvious reasons. So it's interesting to see these trends. The other one I was looking at is I use some data in my book about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ownership. And the global average of adults that use the internet is around 10% who people who've dabbled, let's say, in some sort of way with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And the U.S. is a little bit above average. Now, obviously, that's because of we're all high, highly connected. Uh, it, we've been like pounded with cryptocurrency advertisements and the Super Bowl and stuff. So it's around 12%. But you look at some of these countries that have been structurally adjusted a lot, countries that I look at in my book, and you're talking 20, 22%, 20%, 18%, 16% of internet using adults from 16 to 64 years old using Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So we're talking a really noticeable trend here of these kind of people finding a way out. I thought that was really interesting. And I think this is happening at a, at a, this innovation of Bitcoin is, is, is quite fortunate. And it's happened now because as we were talking about earlier, before we started recording the, I mentioned to you that um, I'm really interested in the, the impact of the, of the U S government's monetary policy abroad. What caused a lot of the suffering that I talked about in my book was the U.S. government raising interest rates in the early 80s, which which it was doing 
were a very like self-interested, but very, very reasonable, like let's say domestically reasonable goal was inflation was getting out of control in the United States and they had to raise interest rates to try and fight that. Like, I think people understand that. That's fine. And when we talk about the Fed's mandates, things like keeping, you know, healthy employment and healthy inflation, things like that, the well-being of other people around the world is not part of the Fed's mandate. So when Volcker raises the rates to 20, you know, 18, 19, 20%, wherever they go to, it absolutely crushes the global South what was known then as the third world and, you know, Mexico defaults and then all these other countries default and you have the third world debt crisis and standards of living just plummet that decade. I mean, again, we're talking people who have to work 50% more or even twice as many hours to earn the same amount of rice or beef or something like that. that. That's really what happened during that time. You had massive, massive wage deflation in real terms. That's happening again, right? In the last 18 months, you're seeing the Fed hike historically, right? Where like up to almost 5% or in that area up from almost from zero and close to zero. And that has led to like massive price inflation in the global South in terms of like bread, uh, wheat, uh, petrol, uh, any kind of like basic stuff that people need to survive. And then also obviously a lot of currency devaluation and the debt service that the governments kind of have to prioritize is all in dollars, right? So mostly there's some that are you know, increasingly in China. And I want to talk to you about that, but in Chinese currency, but in general, like we're still, it's still a dollar world. All these poor nations have dollar debt and it, it all of a sudden it gets really expensive because they don't, they can't print dollars. They can only get dollars through exports really in many cases. And the world starts to slow down. You had COVID, you had the lockdowns. Like, so they've, there's like, as we know, there's been dollar shortages. And you know, that's why you see this stuff about the swap lines, things like that. Cost of capital gets high and you're seeing the same kind of, disarray and tragedy. You're seeing total economic and political collapse in dozens of countries. So if the country hasn't completely politically collapsed, like maybe it has in Iraq or Sri Lanka, for example, then you're seeing total economic collapse like you might see in a place like Lebanon uh, or, or Nigeria or so many other places. So you're seeing like a breakdown. And one of the major, major factors of this, of course, is extremely you know accelerated rise in cost of capital due to the Fed's decision making. So the thing is, to wrap up, I note that people didn't have a way out in the 80s. Like, what were you going to do if you were in Peru in the 80s being structurally adjusted? Like, you, There was no sort of electronic money to be even conceived of. There were no mobile phones. Like, You, you had the currency that you had, which was being de- deflated uh, in terms of its value, very, very devalued very, very quickly, right? And you had no way out. But today, people have a way out. Like their fiat is struggling, right? But we're watching in the data them escape into Bitcoin. I just think that's really interesting. One of the things that I've been uh, talking with various Bitcoiners about on shows and whatnot is just this idea of net producers versus net consumers. And when Mm -hmm. you look at countries, people, businesses that are net consumers or not profitable or don't have disposable income, their ability to buy gold their ability to buy Bitcoin, something that doesn't have counterparty risk is mm-hmm. near impossible, especially when you look at it from a Bitcoin standpoint with all the volatility, like they can't afford to save in this technology if they don't even have save, uh, disposable income. But let's right. just say they do have a small amount of disposable income. They don't want to put it in something that is highly volatile because if they do have to cash it in for to pay an expense, it's difficult or it's challenging or it's worth less and then they they don't have that rainy day fund. So um, when we look at this and we look at the global south and we mm-hmm. look at the impact for the last 40 years is just an explosion of their nominal debt load. Mm-hmm. They don't have, they're not net producers because they have such high loads of interest expense. And so it's really it's really difficult, I guess, from a nation state standpoint, for them to leverage the technology and the power that Bitcoin provides. Do you think that that's one of the main reasons that we're seeing like they like it from a country level? Like you talk to people and they're like, "This is amazing that somebody can't come mm-hmm. in here and change the number of units," but they're still handicapped in into the old the debt loads that they have that they can't yeah. possibly save in it because they're they're still trying to pay down their fiat loans that just keep exploding and expanding. Yeah, well, I think that what we can observe now is that Bitcoin's a way out for individuals. It remains to be seen if it's a way out for countries. Like we just yeah. have to kind of uh, watch that. But what I do think is worth mentioning in response is is stable coins because it's like an interesting. It fits into the narrative in an interesting way. Like typically, what the 
West would do would be to protect its own economies and try to like open up these like global South countries. And like that was the driving force. And in defense, a lot of these global South countries would impose things like capital controls. Like they would try to like protect against capital flight, things like that. So, so you had this like struggle going back and forth because there was not like an equal playing ground. Like the, like the powers that be had massive subsidies, their own internal industries, right? Like massive tariffs on anything coming in. So there was this natural kind of little struggle that, that, I mean, big struggle that, 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 that continues. Now, stable coins are interesting because as I like to point out, the global monetary system has evolved partially because of politics and partially because of markets, right? So when we talk about things like uh, the petrodollar or world trade policy, the agricultural, I mean, agricultural policy, these are obviously political decisions, political constructs, but something like the euro dollar would be a totally market-based construct in terms of it emerged organically outside of the control of the US government. I think it's interesting to watch that. And now you're seeing the stable coins kind of pop up as like a successor to the euro dollar in a way, like, right, they're not, yes, they could probably be killed off by the US government if the US government wanted to, but like, as they exist today, they're kind of like this little free market phenomenon that's popped up where like people really want dollars and it's kind of penetrated out uh, in, into a lot of societies. So I think what's happening is you're seeing people kind of balancing the Bitcoin adoption with stablecoin adoption in a lot of ways. Like everywhere, where, everywhere where, you, where you see Bitcoin adoption, you often see a lot of stablecoin adoption. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Alex, do you, from your yeah. sources and the people you're talking to, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you think that they trust Bitcoin more, but they, but the volatility is the reason why they continue yeah, to preserve I, savings in, in dollars? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's like, again, dollars still the king. There's a natural desire to have the money that everything's priced in in the world. And before stable coins, that was pretty hard for like lower to middle income people in the global south to get. Like they could get it in paper money, which has, of course, like there's a lot of limitations there. But it's not like in many of these countries you could get like you could have like a dollar checking account. That was <laughs> no like sometimes if, if sometimes if you had one, it would there would be haircuts like they would in some countries. If you're a small business, you can like earn dollars from American 
tourists or whatever, or American clients. But in countries like Ethiopia, you have a certain number of days to get rid of the dollars. Otherwise, the government comes in and takes them and gives you the local currency at, at like a horrible exchange rate. The ability to hold, just hold the dollar digitally is a pretty revolutionary thing, I think. And, and again, it might be ephemeral, but it's like, it's interesting to see that. And that is absolutely why you see so much interest in stable coins. Like, I'm not sure people trust stable coins more. It's obviously like we're talking about like, you know, tens of millions of people. So it's hard to make generalizations. But I think that there's trust in Bitcoin. But I think that people know that it's quite volatile and they can't like reasonably run their business off of it. Mm -hmm. If if they're a fiat focused business for now, if you've got all these bills or income coming in in fiat, like it's difficult to be like Bitcoin native. Like that's a challenge. And that you see that everywhere from businesses to even like developers, like a lot of developers, like they try to get paid entirely in Bitcoin and then the price swings and they're in trouble. So I've, I've seen that. I think that while we're in this kind of transitionary phase, it's nice to have both tools. Like as an American, obviously, I like the fact that I can access the dollar and Bitcoin. Like That's pretty handy. And I, I just think it's probably morally reasonable to ask that everybody in the world have that same privilege. Like that's kind of nice. Like uh, I hope everybody in the world could have as we go through this transition access to Bitcoin, but also access to the best fiat currency. I think that that's like, that seems fair. And I think that that the market is expressing that in the rapid adoption of stable coins around the world in these countries. Like people like having the dollar. They also like having Bitcoin. I think that's going to be the case for a little while here. You had mentioned the Chinese yuan uh, being used for debt issuance. Teach us. What are you hearing? <laughs> what is the size of this? Just tell yeah. us everything you know. Yeah, well, it's pretty significant. I, I have some some data for you, but like basically what people need to know is that the CCP has been watching what the IMF and World Bank did, right? Like they, they themselves were clients at one point and they want to replicate it. It's pretty appealing for a natural power, a global power to want to do the same sort of resource exploitation. Like that, that makes sense. So what they'd like to do, which they are doing, is trying to make it so that like resource states that are that have things like minerals or oil, what they'd like to do is is buy that uh, stuff with yuan that they can print, and then have those countries which now have the these like whatever you want to call them petro yuan or you know just yuan earnings. China would like to see some of that get paid back to it in the form of paying back these debts, paying back interest on these debts. That's that's the machine, of course, that the the U.S. built through the IMF and the petrol system, etc. So you're kind of seeing the Chinese try to try to build that. It is not going to work the same way <laughs> because the market doesn't want to use the yuan. Like there may be more and more trade being done in it, but like what what you really should be looking at is like percentage of global like reserves that are held in the yuan, and they still remain like super tiny. Like I don't. If you look at the history of reserve currencies, and here's where I would disagree with Ray Dalio. It's like whether they were the, the Dutch or, or the British or the Americans, like you go back, you look at all the different reserve currencies. They were empires. They exploited human rights abroad, but but domestically where they issued the currency, there was a rule of law. Like there was a court system. There was somewhat of, there was transparency. Like, you know, you could, there was private property. That was the case in, in these systems, even going back hundreds of years. So the market likes having a rule of law uh, at the heart of where the currency is being make, made. That, that's, that's really clear. People like that. That's not going to happen with China. Uh, they, they don't have rule of law. There, there's total opacity. Like no one really knows what's going on. I don't think you're going to see people be like excited to save in that currency. No. You also have the Triffin dilemma stuff like, like China doesn't want to have a really strong currency. That'll completely wreck the country if it can't export mm-hmm. like it has been doing over the last 20 years. Like, like the way it's been able to grow is as many of your guests have, have talked about is through having a weak currency and they continually try to like make that the case where they're like, you know, weaker than they quote unquote should be. And obviously the U S accuses them of being like, you know, what it's a, I find this pretty rich, but the, uh, what do they call them? A currency manipulator. Like this is what countries do. They try to devalue their currency so they can have uh, higher exports. Right. And the U S never had to deal with this because we, we are the, we have the Triffin dilemma. We are the reserve currency. So people will buy our debt no matter how indebted we are mm-hmm. to a point. That's not the case with China. They have, they're in this little dance. But they've tried to establish this kind of IMF type system. And I'll just read some stats that'll give you an idea of how big it is. 
And many, many listeners maybe have heard of like the Belt and Road, which is kind of like the overall construct, but it's really like a bunch of like Chinese funded bilateral and multilateral banks that, that are active in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, Latin America. So about 37% of the debt that the 74 poorest countries owed last year was to Chinese controlled institutions. Wow. So you, you can kind of, it's more than a third. There's a really interesting book called Banking on Beijing by a guy named Brad Parks. And he claims that like in terms of single nation states, like you, you would look at, for example, the IMF, as people might know, is, is controlled by its creditors, which typically are the US plus Japan, Germany, France, UK, etc. But according to him, the CCP is the single largest lender to the developing world today. So as of last year, they had about 843 billion spread across 165 countries and almost 14,000 projects. Before last year, when they started to have trouble, they were deploying about $85 billion per year to the global south. And 90% of that's credit, by the way. And it's not cheap. Like, they're more expensive than the IMF, for mm. example. So I view this as, like, obviously super negative. It's an IMF-like resource-drained dynamic. It's run by a genocidal dictatorship. Like, this is, this is not, like, a good thing. But they are encountering some, some trouble because they don't mint the reserve currency. So the trick to the IMF system has always been that the U.S. government can just simply print more and not suffer as a result of that uh, within reason. We live in this kind of MMT kind of utopia type thing because of the Triffin dilemma. So, we, you know, again, we can just kind of print more and it hasn't necessarily impacted people's appetite for our debt because what, what, what's been better than being promised to be paid back by the U.S.? Like there hasn't really been that many other better places to put your money in the last 50 years until the last few years have started to change that paradigm, right? Well, China doesn't have that setup. So I think what's happening is that they, they have to eat these costs. Like if they lend a bunch of money to a country that goes under or that doesn't want to pay it back, um, sure, they can use force. They can take over. They can national, they can take, take a huge stake in a telecom locally or something like that. But they can't just like extend another loan necessarily. Mm -hmm. that, that's the IMF playbook. The IMF would go to a dictator and they would, they would lend an, a totally irresponsible amount of money, like let's say to Mobutu and Zaire in the 70s and the, or Marcos in the Philippines in the 70s. And they would say, here's a couple billion dollars. And then like obviously the dictator would not pay it back. And that's kind of where China is stuck. Like they have to figure out what to do. That's like, discuss restructuring and all these things. Whereas traditionally the Western systems would just, just say, here's more money. And that's why these countries have this like exponential debt increase. I don't know if you're going to get that exponential effect with China over time because mm -hmm. they can't just print more. Like they have to, they're somewhat limited. So it'll be interesting to watch, but their presence in the global South is way bigger than I thought. I mean, it's, it's pretty serious. Like we're talking again, 37% of all the debt owed by poor countries is to China today. And you see those maps, right? That circulate on social where it's like China is the biggest trading partner of like, it's like the entire global South, right? So they have this massive presence and it's very concerning, obviously. There, for all the criticisms I have for the US and, and for the IMF and World Bank led system, I have even more for China. Like, you know, sometimes we'll do uh, window dressing about human rights, but hey, that's better than like the Chinese coming in and saying, if you talk about human rights, we're leaving. Like there's degrees to this, right? It's very concerning, but I don't think it's as sustainable as what we've got going on because again, they don't, they don't issue the reserve currency and they're about to have a huge economic crisis at home. So you're, see you're seeing them kind of pull back from abroad a little bit. Their banking system is going to be under a lot of stress. I mean, it's, it's very much powered by a lot of these real estate loans, these mortgages that are, yeah. that are going to go to zero. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. But like, clearly, like some of the first things that'll be cut back if they have a serious, serious crisis, financially speaking, are, are their you know, designs across the world, right? You see that when any empire starts to collapse, what disintegrates first is what, what's farthest from the core. Looking at your book. And looking mm -hmm. at all the stuff you learned through writing this book, what's one of the most striking findings or research that you uncovered in that process? I think that, um, well, I mean, and I feel like this can't be mentioned enough, but I was so shocked to learn that the flow of global funds that was moving from rich countries to poor countries, which is intuitive and that that's what you'd think was happening, reversed permanently in 1982. And that essentially since then, what started as a trickle is now a multi-trillion dollar annual flow 
of resources from the global south to the global north. Like, I mean, they, another way of putting that is that the global south is subsidizing our way of life. I think that was a pretty jarring realization. I think that there's also quite a bit of surprise that I stumbled across when I was looking at like protectionist policy. Like, you know, a lot of the neoliberal stuff that the IMF pushes might sound good in a vacuum to a lot of libertarians. Like they may say, well, why, why should there be, you know, subsidies on food and energy, things like that. And I would agree in theory, right? In theory, I'm a classic liberal, but in practice, what happens is that again, there's like these double standards where the West has like centralized a lot of policy and used anti-free market measures to protect their economies over here while trying to like impose this like super, super harsh free market policy there. And that leads to this drain that we're discussing, right? So I thought this was really shocking that uh, just I'll read a um, paragraph from the book. It's estimated that protectionism by industrial countries reduces developing countries' national income by roughly twice as much as provided by development assistance. In other words, if Western nations simply opened their economies, they wouldn't have to provide any development assistance at all. That's a pretty heavy thing to think about. Like if we just sucked it up and stopped subsidizing our agriculture, for example, then the natural reaction would be that agriculture would be much more competitive and profitable in Africa, and they'd make more of it and they'd start selling some of it to us. The fact that they don't do that and the fact that Africa imports 85% of its food, which is another thing I learned doing this, is a result of our policies where we stack the deck. We Again, we, we subsidize, centrally plan, we subsidize our system and we force their system down. And it, it, it just makes, makes it very hard for them to sell this stuff. And that's been done intentionally, like a, a very a stated mission of the U.S. And again, this makes sense from a realist point of view, was to achieve food sovereignty. And we want all these little countries to be dependent on us for food, because then that gives us this huge bargaining chip in negotiations. Mm-hmm. And we've used it. I mean, there have been some countries we've, we've starved, like straight up, like because they didn't do what we wanted. I think that if we would give up some of these economic weapons, I think there wouldn't be any need for foreign aid. Like, like, like that's, I think, the big realization. Like this whole foreign aid industry is just like a Band-Aid covering up a really nasty wound. And we can heal the wound simply by becoming more free market, by practicing what we preach. I think that that was a really interesting realization for me. You probably have some of the best stories about how Bitcoin has impacted real people's lives in the global South. Can you just give us maybe a story that's at the forefront of your mind or something that you've that you've read recently that you think would be a, a great example for people to kind of hear and, and hear the impact of the Lightning Network or Bitcoin as a savings technology or, or whatever? Well, there's two things that I would point out, like Frida Naburema, who I mentioned before and that, that your listeners probably know. I interviewed her for the book at length and she talked about how it's pretty crazy. Like it, and, and this fuels a lot of the anti-capitalist sentiment. Like I think that you and I would probably agree that capitalism is great, but that this is not capitalism, right? To paraphrase Alan Farrington, right? <laughs> like all, all we're looking at is like the manipulation of the market system yes, by yes. governments and states, right? We look at the bond market, we look at the stock market, we look at all this stuff and all we're looking at, all you're reporting on as you do your job is how this is manipulated. It's hard to judge the system when it's so manipulated, I think was Alan Farrington's point. But um, in this current system, whatever you want to describe it as, in general, a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, which includes people that she knows that she works with, they only earn 1% of the price of coffee on the global market. And for her, that's like just super screwed up. Like you don't have to be a Marxist to think that that's screwed up, right? Like the person who does the most work to give you the cup of coffee we talk about value for value in the Bitcoin community. Okay. We talk about paying your local butcher or your local farmer in Bitcoin directly. So they get all the money, right? That's like what you see when you go to Austin, you go to Nashville, you start seeing this like beef initiative stuff. You start seeing this food intelligence stuff. And I'm telling you, this stuff resonates hardcore with people in Africa. Like they love hearing about this. This is super important to them. I think you're going to find a lot of common ground between the Bitcoiners working on food sovereignty in America and abroad, the big, big, big time. But when you think about like the fact that you get these Bitcoin communities trying to establish these direct peer-to-peer ties to the people giving them their food, understanding them as humans, becoming friends with them. I think that then you think about the fact that when you drink this cup of coffee, only 1% of the value goes to the person who grows, you know, who actually does the most work. It's shocking. Like it's, it's really it's crazy. shocking, right? 
she says, if we can get to a stage where farmers can sell their coffee without so many middleman institutions and get paid in Bitcoin directly or more or less directly from the consumer, you could imagine, she says, what, what, how much of a difference that would make in their lives. So that's one thing I wanted to point out along these lines. Second thing is kind of just a story about lightning would be, you know, you've got a lot of Nigerians who have family in the United States or friends or clients in the United States, customers. I mean, you're sending money back to Nigeria from the United States. Again, Nigeria, the biggest country in Africa, is going to be bigger than the United States in population in 20, 30 years. Massive country. Basically, could be called the United States of, of Africa. Heard people call it that. So this enormous, enormous country, there's a lot of flow from the US to Nigeria and from Europe to Nigeria, etc. In the American case, you use any sort of fiat rail, like wh- whether it's Western Union or bank wire or you know, some of them don't work like TransferWise left Nigeria, but, but, you know, you figure out a way to get fiat money from, from the U.S. and Nigeria. And not only are there the, the normal fees that you'd have, whatever the, I think the World Bank says that the average remittance or payment to Sub-Saharan Africa from the West is like 7% fee. Okay. So not only do you have like that fee, which could fluctuate, but then you have the exchange rate risk thing. The government of Nigeria as of recently was imposing an exchange rate of 450 naira per dollar, right? So the person on the other end, whether they be someone you're sending money to, whether you're paying for a service, maybe you're buying a book from a Nigerian author, maybe you're buying some coffee from someone in Nigeria, they're only getting 450 naira per dollar. But the street rate of the naira is 750, right? In this example, like uh, let's say a month ago, not sure exactly what it is now, but this is what it was about a month ago. So the government basically just steals like 40% of the value of that transaction by imposing this fake rate. So the amazing thing about Bitcoin is it gives people the real rate of exchange, uh, mm. which is pretty freaking Incredible. cool. And that's where you, yeah. and that goes for like, again, this doesn't necessarily have to be, I mean, yes, I'm coming at this from a human rights angle. Like I'm thinking about it. Like I don't want to send a grant of $25,000 <laughs> to uh, someone in, and we're doing this. We're funding a lot of people in Nigeria. Yeah. I don't want to be sending a wire if they're only going to get $16,000 out of the 25. I want them to get the whole thing and ideally not pay the 7% either. Now, there's Bitcoin has doesn't have counterparty risk, but it's got an exchange rate risk on its own side. So, hey, maybe they take the 25 when they get it and they sell it for stable coins and keep half. That's their complete... They have free to make their own decision. But what I hate is the fact that if you use the safe official you know, system... You just get robbed. I mean, it's crazy. Like, and this is the opposite of what the establishment would have you think. Like, when you think about the U.S. government and the Financial Times and all the whole establishment media political like circle, they would have you think that the Bitcoin is the more dangerous and risky thing. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but the current system is how they screw you. It's really crazy. It's not just that I'm, you know, concerned from a human rights point of view. It's just for like anyone literally doing a remittance or business or whatever using the Bitcoin rail again, gives you the real rate of exchange. And this is where you can start seeing what Jeff was talking about in terms of forced cooperation. So I'll just read this piece that I think I was inspired by him. So basically, Bitcoin, he says, can short circuit the old system that has subsidized wealthy countries at the expense of wages and poor countries. In the old system, the periphery had to be sacrificed to protect the core. In the new system, the periphery and core can work together. For example, right now, he says, the US dollar system keeps people poor through wage deflation in the periphery. But by equalizing the money and creating a neutral standard for everyone, a different dynamic is created. With one monetary standard, labor rates would necessarily be pulled closer together until kept, instead of kept apart. We don't have words for dynamic, he says, because this never existed. But again, he calls this forced cooperation. And I think what I just described to you in the way that like companies using Bitcoin to do business are now serving the full value of the money to their customers is a really good example of this. Like if you think about this, you think about how the US has been able to impose its, or rather how the US has been able to subsidize its quality of life, honestly, has been to export inflation. We often talk about this, right? Well, it's a lot harder to export inflation if the Nigerian employees are now earning Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> like, no doubt. you know, it's it's and we always talk about wages being sticky. Well, what are they what are you going to do? Tell them you're paying less money. No, what ends up normally happening is like the exportation of, of the inflation of wages or the devaluation of wages is hidden because they're they're just not they're not getting a demotion. They're just not getting a raise and they're making whatever amount of Naira and the Naira is just getting absolutely crushed. Right. 
So this is subsidizing the way of life in the United States with people because it means that our input costs are not as much as they would be in a normal free market, right? Well, all of a sudden you have Bitcoin, it's going to equalize things. And I'm very excited about that possibility. But again, you know, we don't know what's going to happen at the nation state level. But we know that it's already benefiting millions of individuals and a small businesses and families. And that, that's, that's enough. That's all I need to see, right? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Well, you bring up a really interesting point when you're just comparing. We earlier talked about the the volatility of Bitcoin and why that yeah. that's a reason why they might prefer dollars or whatever. But mm-hmm. in this scenario that you just described, when you look at the cut that they take when you're using traditional rails, Bitcoin starts to make a whole lot more sense, even though it has this volatility in the in the price to whatever underlying you're comparing it it back to. So, yeah, well, that's ahead. why you see a lot of people use like Bitcoin. With stable coins, yeah, like like yeah. in the global south, like they kind of it's a package deal. What like they might use the Bitcoin, they may earn in Bitcoin, and then but then they might hedge the Bitcoin by buying some stable coins. This is just sort of and and like I don't it'd be very unfair for us to like judge or blame them for that, right? Because oh yeah, no. they don't 
they don't have dollars. Yeah. <laughs> like, in fact, in a lot of these countries, dollars are illegal mm-hmm. where there's capital controls or the government's going to come and steal all your gold and dollars or like Ethiopia, again, really large, massive country, more than 100 million people. It's illegal to have cash out essentially on your body, like outside in the countryside, like in terms of US dollars, just like FDR tried to take all of the good money from Americans back in the 30s to fund the New Deal and stuff. Like that's what all these dictators do. They try to take the good money away. So that's what this revolution is all about is a reaction, is a reaction to governments doing that everywhere. Which countries are you seeing adopting Bitcoin the most? Like where do you, where do you see this really just kind of taking off right now? Again, I think it's tricky because people who measure this stuff often just to say cryptocurrency, and then we don't have an accurate reading. BitRefill has some interesting data. I mean, they're a really large player in the space of like people using Bitcoin to buy stuff, which of course, as we know, is like a minority of Bitcoin's usage. Like most people use Bitcoin either to like just move money uh, or to save, etc. But for the people actually using it to like buy mobile phone minutes, whatever, if you look at Sergey, who's like the head of BitRefill, he has these great threads with all this data. Matt Alborg also now is helping them out. And he, he's got this good data too. I mean, you'll see Bitcoin is 40% or something of the whole, right? I think something like that. Stablecoins are really dominant. Like that's what people are buying stuff with in this, in these economies. So you, you're really seeing in a lot of places in terms of volume, transaction volume and popularity as like a currency to buy stuff. Like you're seeing a lot of stablecoin traction in a lot of these countries. Again, I think that you often see the Bitcoin and stable coins kind of come to be adopted together. But again, like the, I think that the rate of the people who are comfortable with, familiar with, understand, use Bitcoin is demonstrably higher in, in countries that don't have a good currency. And I think this is just such an obvious thing that would happen. I don't know if they're, I don't know if it's like a law or, you know, a theory or something, but it's, it's clearly an observable reality that the worse your currency is, the more the higher likelihood you are to, to use Bitcoin. It just seems obvious. Do you think that we just need more time for the global South to really kind of understand why Bitcoin is different than stable coins? For, for instance, I don't know when it started taking so much market share, the stable coins and Bitcoin. I would guess mm-hmm. it was in the last two to three years that it's really kind of yeah, taken off. hundred percent. It's like the last three years. You know, if we warp four years into the future from right now, I, I suspect the price of Bitcoin is going to be drastically different than where it is right now. Sure. And these people that have been using stable coins and Bitcoin are going to look back and say, wow, I've been using this stable coin for the last four years. And if I was trying to preserve my disposable income in Bitcoin instead of stable coins, I would be 5x more wealthy or 10x more wealthy than yeah. what I am right now. Is that yeah, what, no, I, what drives I, well, the adoption long term? Or Yeah, but it's so hard to say because look, we're, I mean, we're, we're in like a two-year bear market right now. I mean, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that colors people's understanding of it. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, you got a lot of people out there who got in at 40 or 50, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, mm, you know, I'm sure they're excited that it, it bounced back a little bit from like, what, 16, but people are short-term in terms of the way they think about this when they first get involved, right? So yeah. I think it's fair to expect that whatever the best non-Bitcoin money is, there's going to be a natural market demand for that globally until Bitcoin becomes big enough where like gold, mm-hmm. it's a little more stable. I think that gold's like a pretty good proxy. Like if Bitcoin gets to 10 trillion, 15 trillion, like it's not going to be as volatile. <laughs> it's just, it's going to be too big. It'll definitely still be moving around a lot, but it's, it's going to be more like, oh, like a 2% decline is like a big deal, right? Whereas mm-hmm. today, Bitcoin, we could go down 10% in a day, right? That would be like really unlikely for gold, right? On the road from a trillion from, well, right now we're at a half trillion, but uh, so on the road from a half trillion to 10 trillion, I think that people, the market's going to express demand for, for something else to hedge. And then at some point, it just, that market demand starts to die down as, as people yeah. are more comfortable with Bitcoin. I mean, you've seen it like people who've been around Bitcoin for five years are more comfortable living in Bitcoin because they figured out how to do that. It's not, but it's not like an immediately understandable thing to do. It's, it's hard a little, it's hard to be pure on Bitcoin, right? It's not, not, not so easy. I think it gets easier for a lot of reasons over the coming decade, but I think you're just going to, you're again, you're going to, whatever the, whether it's the dollar or God knows what gold, I mean, whatever it is, like you're going to see the market express demand for that. Hey, let's say the dollar goes under and fiat's like get destroyed and Bitcoin 
skyrockets. Like it might still be too volatile to use in your daily life. So, hey, maybe gold becomes like a thing for a while. And then maybe there's like basically tether is tied to the gold price instead of the dollar price. And there's like these like gold tethers. I mean, it's going to be something like that until I think you see Bitcoin get to the point where one to 2% fluctuations throughout the week are kind of like normal maximum, mm-hmm. like the dollar, like the dollar, right? If you look at the, the, the Dixie, I guess, like it's not that often when it goes up or down more than 10%, right? Yeah. In like yeah. a really short period of time. So once Bitcoin and, but I do think people are underestimating how like the difference between Bitcoin's volatility and maybe like the dollar's volatility, like, like it's going to get there. Like I think in like the next decade where you look at bonds, like, I mean, you've seen, I mean, you're, you're talking about all the time. Like bonds are a type of dollar, a form of dollar, right? And those are already at Bitcoin's volatility. So we talk about the, 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 well, we're, we're like, they're not going to come back up, right? Like they're going in a particular direction. I think that it's going to be a while for people to be fully on board. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have small communities of real diehard people who are like the educators and the evangelists, just like in our world, right? In the West. And then everyone else is just going to be like slowly adopting, but. Given what I've seen and, and, and given what I'm reporting on and given the people I've talked to and, and given the, the history, this is not going to be pretty for anybody, but especially for folks in the global South who have these weak fiat currencies, like yeah. they're going to lose everything. I think it's a moral imperative for us to help them learn about Bitcoin as much as possible. But I also think we shouldn't judge if they find ways to hedge in something that is easily accessible for Americans. Like I would expect that whatever the next best money is for daily use will remain popular until Bitcoin's volatility chills out a little bit. I think that that's completely reasonable in terms of making a prediction. And, and it's rational because if Bitcoin continues to succeed, it will eventually reach a size where it, it will be a little less volatile. So, so I think it's quite natural to just expect there's going to be these like side markets for a while. But in general, the adoption of Bitcoin globally is just going crazy. I mean, the number of conferences and stuff coming up in these places that like, it's crazy. Like I'm trying to go to the, I'm trying to go to the one in Indonesia. Uh, like I want, there's so much to learn from people. Like there's going to yeah. be ones in Indonesia, Argentina, India, Ghana, South Africa, Japan. I mean, I'm just, just rattling off ones I know of in the next 10 months. And we're trying to do what we can here. Like, I, I think that there's no, I, you know, we don't have to, like, I think in many ways, like the, the thought leaders in the global South, like we just have, we have a lot more to learn from them than they have from us in many ways, right? So what I'm trying to do through the Human Rights Foundation is bring them together and then learn from them. So, and then, and then have them learn from each other, which is something I borrowed from the work we do in the human rights field. Like the, what we do is we gather dissidents together, have them trade notes and they get stronger, right? So we want monetary dissidents to come and do the same thing. So at the Oslo Freedom Forum this year, which will be June 13 to 15 in Norway, we're going to have a financial freedom track where we've got Bitcoin community leaders from everywhere from, again, Indonesia to India to Iraq to Cameroon to Venezuela. And they're going to be coming in and teaching us stuff like how to use Bitcoin in a dictatorship. Like what's the best way to grow a community in a global South country? Like that's the kind of content we're going to offer. And we're also going to strive to do more, do what we can to help bring them together and provide them the resources they need, whether it be sponsoring the Africa Bitcoin conference, which I hope you can make one day. Uh, It's amazing. Or any of these other events in trickier environment, you know, political in- environments. So that's that's kind of where I think we can we can help. And again, it's very tied into the writing I'm doing. But to kind of come full circle to the thing you asked me at the beginning, I do think it's the, the fight for human rights and Western values is more important than ever. That's a big takeaway I had from my book. But knowing that that has always come through this unequal exchange, through this exploitation, I think that we need to take a hard look at that and and figure out what well, can we. Can we fix it? Like the, the wrong answer is like simp for some dictator. Like it frustrates me to know and to watch Bitcoiners support like Dubai or Saudi Arabia or China or Russia or whatever. Like that's, that's the wrong way. That's the wrong lesson to take from the fact that our societies are exploitative. Like the right lesson would be to say, what are the good things about our societies and how can we have, how can we reduce the exploitation? That would be the correct lesson in my book. I think that fixing the money that helps address this. I think that moving, transcending fiat, moving more towards a world that I think you and I both think is going to have Bitcoin as more of a significant force in the global economy is going to give more people, individuals, lower middle class individuals a way out, first of all, and, and a shield to protect them against all this nonsense. But over time may start to have a huge impact on like the overall way that nation states interact with each other. 
And, and I, I think it might end up being a more fair system. So let's move forward towards that however we can. And I hope folks can read the book and be prepared to be shocked and angry, um, but then <laughs> also be prepared to get real. I mean, you're going to be very angry when you read yeah. this book. I mean, there's just no way around it. And I anticipate, I mean, that's kind of what I went through. Like I, I just, um, is it the, is I'll it just, all the, is it all the hard facts that everything's backed up? Cause that was the thing that I took away, at least I, reading the article was just like, you state, here's how I see things actually working. And then you back it up with so much evidence and so many facts. Is that, is that why you're saying you're going to be angry? I have 229 citations in, in, in a, you know, 179 page book. And I, I, what I tried to do in the book is actually, I tried to flesh out a, a recommended reading list, which I'm excited about. So I kind of thought hard about the I top, love that. maybe like 25, 30 resources, which really were helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And I just put them in here so folks can go and get those books and learn. And they're like very diverse, like authors are totally all over the political map. But like, these are some of the books that I learned a lot from. And, and I, I took what I could from them. So there's a lot more to be learned from, from just reading the whole things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's something I wanted to give. And it just, it just, I'm just happy to have it out there. Again, it's going to piss people off. But um, as I say in, in the intro, what I went through is that I, I kind of went through a journey of basically going from shock to disbelief to shame to optimism for a better future. So I hope that's like the direction we could go. <laughs> I love that. I would say this. If you have anybody that you know, friend, family, whoever that works in one of these Western NGO nonprofit space (laughs) in in general, right? Because I think so much of the messaging that's happening in the NGO Western NGO space is like, if you go far enough upstream, the IMF and the world bank is heavily Mm -hmm. involved in the messaging of all these programs. People forget they they are the two of the most important pillars of the Bretton Woods system. Like when we, when the U S government set up the world monetary order in 1944, the IMF and World Bank were like two of the handful yes. of key pillars. Like, don't forget that they are the largest international lender of last resort and largest development bank still in the world. They remain incredibly important. They remain criminally under investigated. Yes. Like they, they, they <laughs> yes. remain out of the conversation. And let's, let's just shine a light and see what we can learn. What was my overall take? And that's it. Uh, I think the book can at least like, it would be awesome if like a lot of the employees of these organizations started a book club and, and started to read stuff like this. I think the, the main thing that I also wanted to contribute was like, there's a lot of this like kind of rhetoric out there, like uh, confessions of an economic hitman stuff. Like I wanted to add something from my perspective because I just have a slightly different take. I, again, mm-hmm. I don't think the answer is, is to like oppose the U S and oppose the U S system entirely and stand some like, revolutionary whatever it's chavez or putin or xi jinping like that's a lot of this like de-dollarization stuff you see on the internet these days it's a little concerning because it's like well are you posting about de-dollarization because like you want like russia and china to succeed or are you posting about it because that's a fact and you're observing it right this can often get muddied and i'm posting about it because i've been observing it for years and i I, quite obviously it's happening what i'm not posting i'm not like cheer posting china though like, amen, you see a dude. lot of this amen a lot of this too and i just wanted to add something to the lexicon that was a critical look at the i bank but that was more of like a hey the route is for us to like fix it not like again ditch the system yes. like i feel very very strongly about that and as americans i think that that's important for us like let's not give up on this project yes it's have it has excesses and things that need to end that are shameful and, and highly repressive. But the, the way forward is to fix that, not to give up entirely. So I, I hope folks can appreciate where I'm coming from. I'm that. glad you said but anyway, that. I'm really glad yeah. you said that because I feel the exact same way as what you just said. Oh, yeah, we're, we're not out here cheering for, for no. the, end of the dollar for, no. <laughs> for, for the rise of our enemies or whatever. We're, yeah. we're here cheering for the end of the dollar because the dollar hegemony system has been pretty bad for most Americans. And it's actually led to American support for some of the worst dictators in the world and the repression of countless people. And it's not been the pride of the United States. Like, it's not what the founders intended. Like, remember, the current dollar system was created by Nixon and Kissinger, you know, not by Washington and Adams and and Jefferson. Let's just remember that. So this is something we need to fix about America. It's not our character inherently. 
anyway, I, I like that you like that. So let's let's keep pushing that. <laughs> Absolutely. And people know who to buy this book for. Buy this book for yourself, too. I mean, oh, my gosh, yeah. this is so good. So good, Alex. Thank I you, brother. I cannot uh, say that enough. So thank you so much for making time. Is there anything else you want to highlight that we can have in the show notes? I, I, I want to just say our first conversation, we got into structural adjustment, a lot of mm-hmm. like a lot of meat on what's included yeah, in this book. Yeah. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes with our mm-hmm. first conversation because we covered pretty mm-hmm. much a completely different set of things in this conversation. But totally. What else do you uh, want to highlight? No, just the book's out. It's Hidden Repression. You can get it on Amazon and you can get it on Bitcoin Magazine. I have reasons for you for wanting you to do both or 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 either. The best would be to buy probably if you want to, you can buy with Bitcoin on Bitcoin Magazine, which is awesome. But leaving reviews on Amazon is very helpful for me because obviously that's the whole system. The surveillance capitalist system wants you to <laughs> to do that. <laughs> so the easy way to uh, help me without helping Amazon necessarily would be to buy the book with Bitcoin on Bitcoin Magazine and then leave a review on Amazon. That would be like a great thing. But uh, I will be doing more on this. Uh, if you're in Miami, I will be speaking on Friday of the Bitcoin conference on the main stage around 4 p.m., I'll be right after Arthur Hayes and Michael Lewis, which is pretty awesome. Uh, That's going to be very entertaining. And I'll be right before Jack Mahler's. So it's going to be a really fun afternoon on on the big stage. I've got a 20-minute talk on Bitcoin versus the IMF based on this book uh, for you guys. I also have two signings. I'll be doing a signing in the Whale area on Saturday the 20th. I'll also be doing a signing in the Expo area. More details on that to come. But really, really excited to see a lot of you um, in in Miami uh, soon. And Again, if any of the listeners are interested in, in getting deeper into this content, definitely come to the Oslo Freedom Forum in June. The tickets are available at oslofreedomforum.com. And again, just huge thanks, Preston, for having me on the show. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for making time and coming on. It is always a pleasure to hear what you're up to and to talk about this amazing book that you just published. So thanks for, for coming on, Alex. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.